2 Timothy chapter 3, and our focus will be on verses 16 and 17. Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now let me read these two verses again, making sure that we understand the meaning of the specific words spoken by Paul. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, meaning all Scripture has been supernaturally breathed out by the Creator through men. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's useful, it's beneficial for doctrine to teach us what is true and right about God, about man, about the world we live in, and about how men within this world can relate to God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, That is, to teach us what is wrong. Scripture has been given by inspiration of God also for correction, to teach us how to get right when we are wrong. And then, Paul says, it's been given for instruction in righteousness. That is, God's Word has been given to us so that we will know how to stay right, so that we will know how to live in true righteousness. And then he goes on and says that the man of God, specifically speaking of the minister of the gospel here to Timothy, may be perfect, complete, truly furnished, completely equipped unto all good works. And the compelling emphasis of Paul's words to Timothy is the truth that Scripture alone is divine, authoritative, and sufficient. All Scripture has been given by inspiration of God, therefore it is divine. And because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, all Scripture is profitable to teach us what is true, to correct us when we stray from what is true, and to instruct us in the way of righteousness. Which means that Scripture and Scripture alone is sufficient to equip us to do what God wants us to do. Scripture and Scripture alone is to be the final authority of what we believe and how we behave. What Paul is saying to Timothy as a minister of the gospel in the context of Christ's church is that God's word alone is adequate to govern what Timothy does in life and ministry. He doesn't need the oral traditions of the elders. He doesn't need the varied opinions of the rabbis. He doesn't need the top ten best-selling books on ministry written by the most scholarly Pharisees. He doesn't need to listen to the podcasts of the most well-respected, carefully articulated Greek philosophers coming out of Athens. Paul is asserting that Scripture and Scripture alone has been supernaturally given to Timothy by God and is altogether sufficient to help him do what God has called him to do. And while the immediate context of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is pastoral in nature because it too has been given to us by inspiration of God. Its truths ought to be equally accepted and implemented by all Christians. 
In other words, this truth is not given exclusively to pastors, but to all. All Scripture has been given by God and is profitable for all people at all times. All Scripture has been given by inspiration of God and is profitable to teach all people what is true and how God expects them to worship Him, serve Him, and live for Him. We don't need Scripture and tradition. We don't need Scripture and the opinions of men. Scripture and Scripture alone is sufficient to enable us to implement the whole duty of man, which is, as Solomon tells us, to fear God and keep His commandments. So with this truth of Paul's ringing loudly in our ear, tonight I want us to examine the widely accepted practice of the altar call, as it is commonly called among Christian circles. And looking to our first main point, let me begin by defining my terms. Let me begin by giving a brief explanation of what an altar call is. The altar call is the common practice of a religious leader publicly appealing for those under the sound of his voice to respond to his religious address by coming to a particular place in the room he is speaking, which is often the front of the building. And such responses to a traditional altar call frequently include kneeling at a particular location, praying, talking to assigned personal workers, or being guided to another location of the church building to talk. And oftentimes, the practice of the altar call follows the specific ritual of religious leaders asking those present to bow their heads and close their eyes, to raise their hand if God has spoken to their hearts, and then the altar call climaxes by encouraging those who've raised their hands to come kneel at an assigned area, or if they are unsure about the state of their soul, to repeat a prayer after the religious leader or walk toward the front so they can speak to someone about their spiritual concerns. In brief, the practice of the altar call is the coming forward to a specific place called the altar at the end of a religious service. This is point number one, which is what an altar call is. Now, in my second main point, I want us to consider seven leading biblical problems with this widely accepted practice. And keep in mind, in our Sunday evening series, it is our desire to look at everything through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to be a people who are discerning to hold up the light of God's Word to all practices, all traditions, all teachings to see what saith the Lord. So, my first major problem with the altar call is the obvious truth that we cannot find such a practice commanded or performed anywhere in the entire canon of Scripture. We cannot find such a practice taught or used by the prophets. We cannot find such a practice taught or used by Jesus. We cannot find such a practice taught or used by the apostles. Let's be 100% honest with the Scriptures tonight. There is nothing even slightly close to the evangelistic techniques that are widely accepted and practiced in most churches today. There's not one instance of anyone in Scripture 
encouraged to close their eyes, raise their hands, repeat a prayer, walk down an aisle, or kneel at the front. And my main concern with the practice of the altar call is many believe and act as if such a practice has been indisputably ordained by God. Many passionately think that the only fitting way to end a church service or an evangelistic address is by having a formal altar call where people are encouraged to move their body from one place to another. It's true. If pastors or churches do not give a, quote, altar call, they are viewed as aliens from the outer space. If a pastor doesn't ask a series of specific questions after his sermon, if he doesn't encourage people to come to the front, he is viewed as one who doesn't care for souls. So my question is, why do we think this way if the practice of the altar call is an extra-biblical man-made tradition? Why do we think that it is Bible when it is not a practice that has been encouraged for us to use by God in Scripture? Let's be honest. The practice of the altar call is so ingrained in us that we have come to believe that it is a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith when it is not. I mean, we place it up there along with the inerrancy of Scripture and the perfections of Christ. And this is my first biblically fashioned problem with the altar call. A major problem with most altar calls is that it cannot be honestly and distinctly supported by the whole of Scripture. And I'm not talking about using a verse or two randomly to justify the practice. I'm talking about the examination of the methods of the prophets, the methods of Jesus, and the methods of the apostles used in their preaching opportunities. I'm talking about clear, distinct, biblical truths that support such a practice. I hate to burst your bubble, but it's not Bible. And under this point, let me also point out that not only is the traditional altar call not biblical, it's actually a relatively new practice. Despite certain pastors calling it, quote, an old-fashioned altar, we do not find pastors, preachers, or evangelists calling people to the front prior to the 1800s. Did you know this? This practice is only about 200 years old. So this truth alone should cause us to think and ask the hard questions that few are willing to ask. If it's not in the Bible and it's relatively new, how did this practice start? Who started it? Why was it started? And what has been the lasting result of it? And then we need to ask the question, how did people come to Christ before the altar call was created? Have you ever thought about that question before? I would encourage you to examine the beliefs and teachings and practices of a man by the name of Charles Finney. And then I would encourage you to read the teachings, evangelistic methods, and biographies of Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon who were used of the Lord to reach thousands for Christ, who never once encouraged people to pray a prayer or come to an altar. In our examination of biblical problems with the altar call, we find first that such a practice is not a practice supported by Scripture, and then second, that the name itself is a blatant contradiction to Bible terms. If you're taking notes, truth number one, the altar call, the invitational system as we know it, is not a practice supported by Scripture. 
Truth number two, the name itself is a blatant contradiction to Bible terms. Now, I know the kneeling benches placed at the front of a building and the steps that lead to a platform has come to be defined as an altar. But if we are going to be completely honest about Bible terms and truth itself, we must confess that what we call an altar is not an altar as the Bible defines it. I have yet to see animals being slaughtered and blood being poured out. You say, Pastor, that's silly. No, what silly is are calling things by biblical terms that do not correspond with biblical definitions and practices. And I'm purposely asserting under this point, listen, that our words should mean something, especially as it relates to God, God's holy word, the gospel, the lost souls of men, and Christ's church. Why doesn't the pastor say, come to the stairs rather than the altar? Why doesn't the pastor say, come to the kneeling bench rather than the altar? Why doesn't he say, lay down your burden on the platform rather than the altar? Why do pastors call it the altar? Are we Catholic? I think we are. Much of the invitational system has so many Catholic tendencies Think about it. We have a priest giving assurance to people regarding their salvation. We have religious leaders encouraging people to repeat prayers after them. We are encouraging people to do religious things rather than believe on Christ. And like infant baptism, many church attenders grow up and say, well, I'm good with God because one time I perform that religious sacrament. I'm afraid far too many of my Baptist brothers who passionately assert that the Baptists do not find their origins in the Catholic Church blindly act like Catholics through many of their church practices. Something else to think about in regards to remaining Faithful to Bible terms. The Bible in Hebrews 13.10 calls Jesus Christ our altar. That's Bible. Who is our altar? Christ. Christ is our altar. So, why do we want to tell others to go to a physical location in the church rather than turn to God Himself? If Christ is our altar, biblically speaking, why not urge people to turn to Him in their hearts? You see, the physical place is replacing God Himself. We've made coming to a, quote, altar equivalent to going to Christ. We're focusing on the physical more than the spiritual. Our emphasis is on the external rather than the internal. And furthermore, we proceed by saying, well, we, we know that it's not an altar, but we're going to call that an altar anyway. And in so doing, we are knowingly lying to ourselves and others. My question is, is it an altar or not? Let's be honest. My, name, my aim in this discernment series is Honesty. My driving purpose is to encourage all of us to accept only that which is true. Enough with the spiritual schizophrenia. I'm tired of the bipolar Baptist doctrines. What do you mean? Well, out of one side of our mouth, we say, it's not the prayer that saves. Yet out of the other side of our mouth, we say, if you prayed that prayer, I know you got born again. Out of the one side of our mouth, we say, it's not really an altar. Yet out the other side of our mouth, we say, it's the altar. 
Out of the one side of our mouth, we say, it's only God that saves the sinner. Yet we behave and preach that if man makes a movement with his body, if man makes a decision, if man repeats a prayer, that is the determining factor of salvation. So my question is, which is it? It can't be both. Which is it? Let's be honest. Let's be true. Let's let the Bible defer, define our terms for us. Biblical problem number two. The phrase altar call is a blatant contradiction of biblical terms. Biblical problem number three. Many have come to believe that coming forward in a church service is the only way anyone can come to faith in Christ. Listen, there are many well-meaning people well-meaning believers who sincerely think that the only way someone can come to faith in Christ is through raising a hand, walking an aisle, and repeating a prayer. Why do they think this way? They think this way because we've conditioned them to think this way. We've taught people that coming forward in a church service is the principal way to come to Christ. Now let me pause and give a balanced view here. Now I don't want to deny that God is often pleased to save others through the means of preaching in a church service. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians. It pleases God to save others through the foolishness of preaching. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Most testimonies do include confrontation given through preaching. But when we look at scripture, we find that there were many who came to faith in Christ who did not respond to an official altar call. Let me give you the examples. Think of Nicodemus. Privately coming to Christ by night to talk about his soul. And we have testimony after that conversation that Nicodemus did come to faith in Christ. We think of Jesus opening the heart of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 as she was going about her daily business in collecting water. Think of Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was on his way to persecute Christians when God decided to save him. We think of God opening Lydia's heart in Acts chapter 16 by the riverside. Mind you, God saved Lydia in a prayer meeting. Here she was religious, going about the external practice of prayer, and God saved her. Oh, that God would save some who come to our prayer meetings on Wednesday nights. God saved the Philippian jailer in his place of employment. The Ethiopian eunuch was on a road trip when God decided to save him. He was in his chariot as Philip is led to the eunuch to preach to him Christ. How about the thief on the cross? The thief on the cross didn't raise his hand or walk an aisle. He couldn't. His hands and his feet were nailed to a cross. So how did he come to Christ? He came to Christ by believing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. All these biblical accounts and many others teach us then that God doesn't need a formal public invitational system to reach people for Christ. Now, God in His grace often does reach people for Christ in such a way. But God doesn't need that. That is not the only exclusive way for sinners to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And this third problem ties in with biblical problem number four that I mentioned last week in our examination of the sinner's prayer the practice of the altar call distorts the message of the true biblical gospel. The practice of the altar call distorts the message of the true 
biblical gospel. What do you mean? I've met several people over the years who've told me that their testimony of salvation involves going forward at the end of a church service and praying a prayer after someone. There have been many times in my asking others how they came to faith in Christ that the answer has been, I went forward and got saved. And that's the whole of it. And even in my trying to be gracious, even in my asking, after they say that, can you give me more detail? Even when I encourage them to tell me about the surrounding circumstances, all they say is, I prayed the prayer, I walked the aisle. I went to the crusade and I did what the pastor wanted me to do. No mentioning of being convicted of sin. No mentioning of a new understanding of who Christ is and what Christ has done for sinners. No mentioning of being persuaded that Jesus is the only hope of salvation. No testimony of a life before Christ and a life after Christ. No mentioning of old things being passed away and all things becoming new. All that is mentioned is I responded to the altar call. And I have the card that was signed to prove it. I fear that the faith of many people who attend most churches today rests in their doing for God over and above Christ saving them from the miry pit and setting their feet on a rock. And this is a serious problem. The altar call distorts the truths of the gospel by encouraging others to do something for God, rather than believing that only Christ can do for them what they are unable to do. And they are unable to do for God because they are a hell-bound, depraved, hopeless, vile child of the devil who deserves to taste the punishment for their sins against the Holy One. Either Paul's words in Ephesians are true or not. Sinners are completely spiritually dead in trespasses and sins or not. We're asking dead people to do something for God to obtain salvation. It doesn't work that way. They must be born again. Nicodemus was dead, but he was religious. He was sincere. He prayed prayers. Yes, he did, but he was dead. And Jesus was teaching him that he was dead and that he needed an awakening by the Spirit of God. The practice of the altar call distorts the message of the true biblical gospel. Problem number five is another point that I mentioned last week, which is the undeniable truth that the altar call encourages a false measure of success. It encourages a false measure of success. Among those circles where the altar call is used and cherished as the most important method of ending a sermon, the common thought process is this. If the altars are full, it was a blessed Sunday and God was undeniably at work in the hearts of men. But if the altars were empty, well, that indicates that something's wrong with the preacher and it was an unsuccessful service. And this is the modern ideology of most youth camps. Some of you who've gone to youth camps know this. If the grade school kids and teenagers at the summer Christian camp flock to the front and they cry and then they go out and find a stick that symbolizes their sin that they can throw in the bonfire at the end of the week, then camp is successful. But... If kids and teenagers humbly consider the teaching of God's word, but they don't cry, they don't respond to the pastor's preaching by moving their bodies, they don't raise their hand, they don't come to the front, we wonder how they could be so hard-hearted and resistant toward God. The same is true with, quote, most revival services. The evangelist comes, he preaches, he pushes for decisions, 
He has been taught that numbers equals success and lack of numbers demonstrates a problem. So he does everything he can to work the emotions of his hearers to push for numbers. And sadly, we have church services, youth camps, and so-called revival services where the preacher tells lightweight, funny, flippant stories the entire time and barely preaches the Bible, but somehow he's able to tell a sad, moving story at the end of his address and gets people to come forward. Think about that for a moment. I've seen this happen dozens of times. The pastor talks about himself. The pastor talks about random off-the-wall subjects in the name of God. He's loud, he's passionate, he's charismatic. He knows how to work the people. So when the invitation comes, he has to show that he is successful by getting the people to do what he wants them to do. This is a problem. The altar calls far too often encourage a false measure of success. Then tied in with this truth is problem number six. The altar call often encourages pride. It encourages pride. Now last week I mentioned how this new fad among pastors is to boast of the decisions they get week by week by posting pictures on their social media accounts of people praying at the altar, and they say in the post, look at what God did. My pressing question to this is, if God is really the one who's done the work in the hearts of men, why not just leave it with God? Why do you need to take a picture of people flooding to the altars and why do you need to post it online with a comment? Now, I can't speak for all who do this, but could it be, could it be that those who post such things want to show how successful they are? Could it be that they are looking for the approval and praise of man? I'm just asking questions. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if I took a picture of you after every sermon and posted it on my social media account and boasted about how many in our flock came to the front after my preaching? And under this point about pride, I need to bluntly point out the truth that the altar call frequently tempts pastors to be the lords over God's heritage. I've seen the practice of the altar call turn church leaders into manipulative tyrants and domineering lords over God's heritage far too often. Listen, I sat under a man who preached an entire sermon on the importance of going to an altar from Elijah repairing the altar in 1 Kings chapter 18, which, by the way, was a complete misinterpretation of Scripture. Elijah was not repairing a church platform or a prayer bench. Yet that's what he preached. Anyways, after the message on the importance of walking an aisle and praying at the altar, the church leader said, quote, If you haven't been to the altar in six months, something is wrong with your heart. You know what happened? When the sermon ended and he gave an altar call, 90% of the church went forward and my wife and I stood there among the 10% who stayed in their seats. It was clear that such tactics Tactics were used to control the people who were under his voice, and it worked. Listen, and the Bible wasn't even faithfully preached. It was distorted from beginning to end. That's cultish. 
That's demonic. It happens in Baptist churches all the time. Listen, to add to this, I've seen pastors plagiarizing their sermons from beginning to end and then calling on people to come forward after he just handled the word of God deceitfully and people by dozens flocked to the front. Do you see the problem with this? The pastor, the one who is supposed to speak truth for God, knowingly stole and lied in the name of the Lord and then he manipulates people to come forward. Now, again, God is sovereign. God can work despite the pastor's stupidity and despite the pastor's or the people's ignorance. But we ought to pause and ask if God is actually blessing such a ministry, especially when the Bible says God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Again, I'm just asking questions that you will think about. Pastors, are grieving the Spirit, quenching the Spirit through their preaching, not preaching the Word of God faithfully, but yet they have this power to get people to come to the front. Problem number six is the sad reality that the altar call often encourages pride. And then the seventh problem the Bible has with the common practice of the altar call is that it promotes fearing men over fearing God. Now think about it with me. If people think that they have to go forward to look spiritual, they're going to go forward every time there's a chance. Have you ever experienced this before? I've been guilty of this several times in my life, especially when I was a new believer. When the pastor said, if God spoke to your heart, raise your hand. If you rose your hand, now you come forward. I thought, well... I guess I should go forward because the pastor saw me raise my hand and I don't want him to think that I'm being defiant now. Or sometimes you think, I could easily stay in my seat and settle things with God in my heart, but I want the pastor and others to think well of me, so I guess I'll go forward and kneel at the altar. I've mentioned this story before. I'll mention it again. I remember being in a church service where a teenage girl who attended church faithfully week by week, brought her friend to church for the first time during a weekly revival meeting. And at the end of the sermon, the teenage girl pulled the arm of the first time visiting friend and said, don't you want to come forward and get saved? And in the back room of this decision-making place, There were many kids laughing and giggling and dazed about what was going on. And then this visiting girl came out and the evangelist quickly approached her and said, Did you come to Christ? And she sheepishly said, "Uh, uh, 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 Yeah. She came back for a couple times after that and then never returned. I fear the friend made a decision because she was unduly pressured and did what she did to please her friend and others. Listen, I know what this is like. I went through the motions of the altar call in a junior church setting when I was a kid. I've mentioned it. I rose my hand. I went forward. I prayed a prayer. I did it to please my dad. It wasn't real salvation. I wanted my dad to think well of me but I wasn't troubled at my sinfulness against God. The altar call promotes fearing men over God. And the Bible confirms that we ought to fear God over men. The fear of man brings a snare. These are seven main problems with the altar call. Number one, it's not commanded or practiced in the Bible. Number two, the name itself is a blatant contradiction in terms. Number three, many have come to believe that it's the only way anyone can come to faith in Christ. Number four, it distorts the true message of the gospel. Number five, it encourages a false measure of success. Number six, it encourages pride. And then number seven, it promotes fearing men over God. Now, having looked at the biblical problems with the altar call, 
In my third main point, let me give you the common objections that are often given to the biblical problems that I've mentioned. There are typically three common kickbacks that people give when someone dares to criticize the practice of the altar call. Kickback number one is, Pastor, that's what we've always done. This is how I was taught. This is what is expected of us. We can't imagine doing church or evangelism any way else. That's kickback number one. It's what we've always done. Kickback number two is it works. The altar call works. It gets people to come forward. It makes it appear that people are serious about spiritual things. It makes people make decisions so that we can put the number of decisions in our prayer letters. It works. Listen, just because something leads to a specific result doesn't make it right. This is what we've been talking about over the last several months in our series on discernment. Having clowns, dunk tanks, rock bands, and fluffy sermons might get people to a church, but that doesn't mean that it is sanctioned by God. So just because it appears that it works doesn't mean that it is biblical and that it is the most helpful practice to implement in the work of God. That's kickback number two. It works. Kickback number three is, but pastor, it's symbolic. It's symbolic. The Bible says that individuals are called to confess their faith before men. The Bible says that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Jesus Christ publicly called his disciples to follow him. My response, okay, I don't disagree with these truths. But I do think that we are stretching the scriptures and forcing our traditions into such passages rather than expositing and applying the truth of God's word faithfully. Listen, the Presbyterians say that infant baptism is a symbol. Should we baptize babies? They will look you in the eye and sincerely tell you, well, we, we don't believe that babies actually come to faith in Christ when we baptize them. We believe that is a covenant sign. It is the replacement of circumcision. It's a symbol. So what's the problem? The problem is many grow up and say, I was baptized as a baby and I'm good. Symbolism. Well, there were lanterns in the Old Testament tabernacle. Should we pound olives throughout the week and light lanterns in our church as a symbol of Jesus being the light of the world? Jesus says, he that loveth father or mother is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy. Should we have a time where people openly denounce their love for their family? That would be fun. You need to stand up here and say, you hate your mother and father. Do it now. Or we're not going to accept you into the church. It's symbolic. Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. Should we remove our shoes at the door and wash each other's feet? There seems to be more biblical warrant for foot washing than actual using the altar. The Bible says we need to confess our sins one to another. Should we install a confessional booth in the church? Do you see where this can lead? We can make the Bible say anything we want. We can symbolize anything and everything. Three common kickbacks. We've always done it. It works. It's symbolic. These are the three leading objections to those who question the practice of the altar call. And then we have the leading objections of the altar call. Often find their roots in tradition, pragmatism, and supposed symbolism. So in my fourth point, let me give you my pastoral objections to the common objections. So we have the problem, we have the objections. Let me give you the objections. So someone comes along and says, Pastor, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with doing an altar call? Why can't you just get with the pro program? Why are you so resistant to such a practice? Two questions to consider. Number one, are we going to allow Scripture to influence our thinking and practice or man-made traditions? 
Why do we want the traditions of men to trump the truth of God's word? And wasn't this what Jesus strongly rebuked in the practices of the Pharisees? The Pharisees refused to submit to Bible truth to maintain their traditions. They would not give it up. Tradition was God. So when we say, I know that the practice of the altar call is not really in Scripture. It wasn't used by the prophets. It wasn't used by Jesus. It wasn't used by the apostle. But it's what we've always done. It works. It's what's been expected of me. So I can't do anything else. That's pride. I know, but that's pride. So question one, are we going to allow Scripture? Think of our text, 2 Timothy 3.16. Are we going to allow Scripture to influence our thinking and practice or man-made traditions? Question number two. Why are most Christians unwilling to honestly assess the true effectiveness and long-term fruit the altar call has produced? Why are they unwilling to even look at it? Why are we so reluctant to humbly acknowledge the problems and the clear problems associated with the sinner's prayer and the altar call? Seriously, think about it. Think about how many people have come to the front and made decisions, not just here, but worldwide. Think about how many people have signed a card in a revival service. Think about how many young people have shed tears at a youth camp. Think about how many people we've heard reach for Christ in missionary letters. Now, take that and examine it with the spiritual condition of most churches and the spiritual condition of our nation. And in the consideration of this, we need to humbly ask, What teachings and practices have led to our downfall? Something's led to it. What is it? Why are we seeing most churches growing in sinful compromise, most churches striving to be like the world? Listen, if millions upon millions are reached for Christ every week, those are the numbers being boasted. Every week, worldwide, millions and millions and millions and millions. We should be seeing revival if that's the case. I get the missionary letters every month. Praise God, we saw 300 people saved. We saw another 300 people saved. We saw, I, I begin to calculate it. That guy's been there for over 20 years in Mexico City. He should have about 25,000 converts. That city should be turned upside down. Oh, but we have another problem. They're all carnal Christians, right? I'm convinced the problems the altar call has produced far outweigh the benefits. So it's worth re-examining and abandoning. Remember what we're talking about. We're talking about discernment. Sinclair Ferguson reminds us, quote, True discernment means not only, not only distinguishing the right from the wrong, It means distinguishing the primary from the secondary. It means distinguishing between the good and the better and even between the better and the best. Finally, let me conclude by giving several suggested biblical alternatives that ought to be implemented in place of bowing heads, raising hands, walking an aisle and praying a prayer. So somebody might be crying in their hearts as I speak now, if we don't do the altar call, what should we do instead? Well, in regards to the pastor's preaching, let me offer two points. Number one, the pastor should be urgently calling on men to believe on Christ in his sermon. If a pastor really wants to be biblical, he will have calls throughout his discourse, throughout the entirety of the sermon, 
For others to examine themselves, to repent, to believe, to decide, to confess, and live out Bible truths. Truly, submit to Scripture. How did Isaiah preach? He preached, look unto me, God says, and be ye saved, for I am God and there is none else. What did John the Baptist preach? John said, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. How did Jesus preach? Jesus called on men to repent and believe, not bow their heads and pray a prayer. Jesus said, come to me, not the altar. Peter preached repentance, Acts chapter 2. Paul preached the same way, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. If we really want to be evangelistic, Why should the pastor wait to the end of his sermon to give an appeal while the reality is some may die before he gets to the end of his sermon? Why is the one who pleads with sinners throughout the sermon viewed as an uncaring man towards souls and the one who tells funny stories throughout his sermon who gives an altar call viewed as evangelistic. Again, I'm just asking a sincere question. Application number one, the pastor should be urgently calling on others to believe on Christ through the course of his sermon. Did you not see that this morning? We took 1 Peter 5, verse 7, as it relates to casting our cares upon the Lord, and we made that into an evangelistic plea. You're burdened about death. You're concerned about the state of your soul. You know you can't do what Christ commands you to do. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That preaching's long gone. For the most part. Application number two as it relates to the preacher. The pastor should be personally shepherding those who come under his care. Hebrews 13 tells us that it is a requirement of gospel ministers to watch for the souls of others as those who give an account. And one of the ways a pastor watches for souls is by diligently knowing the state of the flock, Proverbs 27, 23. So this means the pastor should be taking the time to get to know those who come to church He should be taking the time to examine the testimonies of those who profess faith in Christ. But he doesn't. Do you know why he doesn't? Because it's work. It's labor. It requires time and energy and effort. And the pastor needs to get his golf game in throughout the week. Do you see our problem? The pastor would rather run people through a quick system and call it salvation So he doesn't have to work hard in listening, examining, teaching, and confronting. It's far easier, let me tell you, it's far easier to run people through a quick system rather than sit in the office and hear somebody spew some cheap testimony and the pastor having to confront him. And then that person who says they're a Christian starts cussing out the pastor because he's such a strong Christian. But don't, don't worry, he's saved because one time he came down the altar. Can you imagine going to a doctor and a nurse comes into the room and in two quick minutes he or she writes you a prescription and then leaves? Think about it. You go to a doctor for a serious problem, a deathly disease, and there's no doctor present, there's no doctor to listen, there's no examination of blood work results. There's no examination of x-rays. No workable solution to the problem that you are experiencing. You're just rushed in and out by a nurse who just got hired. This is exactly what is done in the church with our modern day usage of personal workers. Churches assign any willing personal worker who's memorized the Romans road 
to deal with the eternal souls of men. While the pastor, the one called of God to shepherd the souls of men, the one called of God to give himself to doctrine, doesn't know the spiritual condition of the people that he preaches week by week. And he will not take the time to help others find rest for their souls. This is a colossal problem. And much of it has to deal with pastors. There used to be a day in which pastors truly pastored. There used to be a day where pastors truly watched over the souls of men. But that day is long gone. The pastor is now viewed as a hired deacon who schedules social activities for the people throughout the week so they're not bored. Sad, sad, sad. Two things the pastor should do instead of running people through a quick routine. Number one, he should be preaching the Bible and pleading with the souls of men throughout his sermon. Number two, he should be counseling those who come throughout the week. Now, as it relates to the individual Christian and the collective church, how is it that others should respond to a sermon rather than coming forward and kneeling at the front? Number one, they should take time to examine their hearts by what was said and humbly contemplate where they stand with God. After every sermon, you, in your pew, need to think, okay, I've heard the text. So what does it mean to my life? How can I apply this now? Second, in our response, we should take time to immediately confess and repent of any known sin or wrong thinking in our hearts before God. Whosoever confesses to God, 1 John 1, 9, God is faithful and just to forgive of us our sins. It doesn't say those who walk and confess. It says those who confess. If we acknowledge our sins, wherever we are, God is faithful and just to forgive us. It doesn't have to be near the front. It can be anywhere. And then number three, and most important, how do we respond to the sermon if we don't go to the front? Here it is. You should go home and live out the truths of Scripture. This is the most important element of preaching, to be doers of God's Word, not hearers only. Listen, the evidence that God has worked in someone's heart is not a raised hand, but a changed life. The evidence that someone has been changed by a sermon is not found in tears shed at the front of a building, but is found in one's day-by-day humble obedience to God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. When? Just Five minutes once a week? No. Every day throughout the day, a living sacrifice. You should be sacrificing yourself to God every morning. When you wake up in your bed, you say, God, I'm yours. What do you want me to do today? Yes? Do you need an altar call? As you're driving to work, God, I want to live for you. I want to do your will in my workplace. I'm surrendering to you my time. Redeeming the time, the day. That's an altar call, so to speak. I like what one pastor said at the end of a college chapel where they were conditioned to always use altar call. I like what one guest preacher just came in and he just surprised everyone. One guest pastor came in, he preached the word of God. And then at the end of his sermon, he said, don't come here and cry about it. Go out there and live it. Goodbye. He didn't even give a closing prayer, but he made an important point. Don't get all emotional about coming to the front. If God's really worked in your heart, take this truth and live it out now. So what must we do as it relates to seeing people come to Christ? Here it is. We must preach the truth. We pray for God to open the hearts of men. And by faith, we wait on God to do His perfect work In His perfect time, we wait on the one who cannot fail in seeking and saving His sheep. 
Listen, God can do His work far better than we can. The question of all questions in this topic is, do we believe that? Do we believe that God can do His work in His own ways and in His own times? Or does He need man to help Him out? We know what that happened with Abraham, given a promise. Wait, Abraham, you're having a son. See the correlation here. You're having a son and you're old. Well, that's impossible. Guess what? It's impossible to see people come to faith in Christ. With men, it's impossible. The rich young ruler, that's what the context is. It's impossible. Man cannot open his own heart. Man cannot translate himself from darkness. to He can't do it. Abraham, Sarah, you're going to have a child. Well, that's impossible. Yes, but I've given you a promise. Wait. What does he do? He becomes impatient. I've got to take matters into my own hand. And it leads to problem after problem after problem after problem. See the correlation where we've come today. All the problems we're dealing with because we won't wait on God. We've got to push it. 